Well, good evening to everyone, and thank you very much for joining us. We've got an excellent turnout, and it's deserved it so far, a very interesting topic with a very distinguished audience. My name, my very distinguished uh, panel of speakers, distinguished audience too as well. I'm, I'm Brendan Donnelly. I'm the director of the Federal Trust, and we're a think tank very interested in, in questions of in international and supranational governance. <coughs> um, and this uh, occasion this evening is jointly organized by the LSE and the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung here in London. Um, and the Federal Trust is, is very much uh, glad to be associated with both organizations, and I'd like to thank them both, um, the representative here and, and the representative of LSE, representative of LSE for inviting us, um, uh, for inviting me to chair this occasion this evening. I'm much looking forward to it. It's a topic that the Federal Trust is, is very interested in and has, has written a certain amount about. Um, this question of, of whether um, we live in a different kind of um, world of foreign and external relations from the one we used to live in 20 or even 30 years ago has, it seems to me, uh, at least two aspects, um, one of which is, is the purely pragmatic <laughs> and factual one when we look at the way in which um, uh, diplomats conduct their work today, the elements of environmental policy, of agricultural policy, of all the consequences of globalization are much nearer the surface of their work um, than would have been the case um, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, we in the Federal Trust are very much in, in favor of the, of the new uh, arrangements um, of the, under the Lisbon Treaty, particularly for setting up a, a new action service, um, which we see as acting as a mediator, not so much between Europe and the outside world, but at least as importantly within the European Union itself. After all, if the um, Action Service can get the um, Directorate General of Agriculture to talk to the di Directorate General of, um, of External Trade in the European Commission, it shouldn't be at all difficult to get um, North Korea and Iran back into the Committee of Nations. Uh, the other side of the argument, of course, is, is a more philosophical and political one. Um, perhaps uh, we do live in a world in which multilateral organizations and, and, and the, the working out of, uh, of international law and, and rules, rule-guided uh, activities at the global level um, play a more important role than they, they, they did before. Um, and that obviously is something that philosophically is, is very interesting to the Federal Trust. Um, we've got, um, I'm sorry to say, only three speakers this evening, but um, perhaps that will give us a bit more time to, to hear their words of wisdom. Nick maybe sends his uh, apologies and, and unfortunately can't, can't join us um, this evening. Um, but the, 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 the term, uh, of terms of the debate this evening are um, about statecraft and, and whether the, the traditional model of, of diplomacy is, is an appropriate one today. Um, when a long, long time ago I was a, a diplomat, I, I, I know that the diplomats that I met with um, spent all their time worrying about the changes that were coming about in their professional life. Um, perhaps it's a traditional activity of diplomats to wonder about where their profession's going. And when I see um, diplomats that I meet today, I, I'm struck by at least as much by the similarities to the diplomats I used to work with uh, as the differences. Um, but we're going to be um, helped through that um, in the first instance by, by Dr. Mary Martin, who's, who's of, this, um, of this parish, because she's a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Global Governance here at the LSE. Um, she has a, a very distinguished academic background, but also a journalistic background as well. She was European business editor for The Guardian in the Daily Telegraph a New York correspondent uh, uh, of The Guardian. Um, there is, uh, I think, available a, a report that you've recently written which um, uh, can be uh, obtained. Can, are there copies available later on? Yes, we can. Good. Well, uh, if anyone would like to, to come afterwards, uh, I'm sure we can provide them with, with, um, with a, a report. So perhaps um, 12 minutes or so, but um, because Nick isn't here, 
Uh, I'll, I'll give you a bit of latitude. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Um, I'm going to start by talking about diplomacy from a European Union perspective before handing over to my colleagues on the panel who have perhaps a, a broader view. In just about over 24 hours from now, we will know the results of Ireland's referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. And if the Irish vote yes, um, this treaty will come into effect, introducing quite widespread, uh, wide-ranging changes on the way foreign policy is conducted at the EU level. It beefs up the role of the High Representative, the post currently held by Javier Solana. So that post will effectively be an EU foreign minister. And among the significant innovations of the Lisbon Treaty is the setting up of an EU diplomatic arm, the European External Action Service, to assist the new foreign minister. Can't hear. Better if you use the table. Yes. Yeah, no, I can. Thank you for telling us, obviously, people want to hear. It was better when I was speaking at the beginning, was it? Oh, even when I was speaking, it was the same thing, Alma. Well, I get to sit down. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, with this new uh, external action service, the EU has the chance uh, to design from scratch a new type of diplomacy and one that's perhaps better geared to the kind of contemporary challenges that foreign policy has to, uh, to meet. It also reflects a different kind of role that organizations as well as states have to play in foreign policy. And what I wanted to say was that the creation of the External Action Service isn't only an opportunity for the EU to rethink what diplomacy is, but perhaps for states themselves to ask questions about what should be the role of external delegations. And my starting point is that we all live in a world of peoples, not just nation states. Um, and whereas diplomacy has been a defining element of statehood, um, even before the Westphalian era of nation states, today globalization suggests that we should reinvent that to take account of the fact that a kind of concept of territorial state is no longer all powerful. And that the relationships that count in international politics are not just those between governments, but in effect a matrix of different linkages. And while it's true that uh, traditional diplomacy has adapted to this, Brendan alluded to the fact that diplomatic, diplomats are constantly questioning their role, um, what I would say is the architecture of diplomacy perhaps hasn't kept pace. Um, and I mean an architecture in, in both a literal sense, in terms of buildings, I'll come on to later, but also in a legal or an organizational sense too. And one illustration of this is the um, convention, the 1961 Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. And Article 41 states that diplomats have a duty not to interfere in the internal affairs of the state. However, if you look at engagements, foreign engagements, certainly by the EU around the globe today, interference is very much the currency of that engagement. If you're thinking about trade relations, but more to the point, post-conflict assistance, humanitarian assistance, and so on. And what I want to propose is that the EU's new diplomacy should focus on human security, not state security. 
And by that, I mean that it's built around the interests of individuals and communities rather than nation states. And that the aim of this new external action service should be to deliver a foreign and security policy which ensures that particularly vulnerable people are protected both against physical violence but also material deprivation, what we would call a mixture of freedom from fear and freedom from want. So what does this kind of approach mean? It means promoting values, not just interests, and specifically core principles like the primacy of human rights, a bottom-up approach where you involve ordinary people as well as elites and political leaders, a regional focus rather than just individual nation-states. So if you take a human security approach towards the external action service, what does it look like? Um, it certainly wouldn't perhaps focus so much on the institutional design and the policy process, which is the typical way that Brussels approaches these kind of things, bit of horse trading over who gets which posts and so on. Instead, you're going to look at much more the aims and the impacts of foreign policies. And that the new service really ought to be, its main mandate should be to uphold um, principles and achieve that kind of effectiveness rather than worry about how it's going to serve the interests of the diplomats. Um, and let me give you three examples where I think the major differences between this and traditional diplomacy are, and where the EAS, the External Action Service, could really make a, a difference. Firstly, foreign policy is no longer an elite activity. Um, and a, a human security approach would reframe external relations as a multi-level activity, so you would include local and community constituencies and individuals. Secondly, it would mainstream policies to safeguard economic and social, as well as civil and political rights, pay attention to things like gender equality and devote more resources to those things. Thirdly, a bottom-up design, how does that <coughs> translate? It would create deeper transmission channels, I think, between, say, Brussels in this case and third countries, and channels which integrate the views of civil society. Traditional services tend to focus on elite government dialogues, very top level. The problem is today, the interlocutors that you find, whether you're the EU or a nation state, aren't always nice and organized and clean. They're messy, they're dysfunctional, they may be warlords in some extreme examples, but they may be disorganized groups of, of individuals, not nice, neatly packaged nation states. So what would these differences mean in practice? Um, and I've looked, uh, in the paper that I did, I looked at rather specific examples because the EU is, um, I suppose, most visibly engaged in areas, troubled areas, uh, post-conflict areas, even conflicted areas uh, where conflict is still going on. And these are perhaps extreme examples, but they give us an indication of, of what is relevant. Um, so if you look at where the EU is engaged, places like Kosovo, Georgia, even Afghanistan, certainly Africa, what you get is an idea of uh, a different kind of challenge to the diplomatic service. Um, but each delegation is going to have to be different. There is no one size fits all. So the need for a kind of multi-level approach, what that means, I think, is that you end up 
with um, being closer to the ground, having offices out in rather uncomfortable, unpleasant places, um, pushing initiatives down to the micro level, um, dealing with individual issues of human rights and welfare. Um, a regional focus one, again, not something that is only focused on, on an individual nation state. And you see the difference because typically, as we know, diplomatic delegations tend to be in rather smart buildings in nice areas of capital cities and not necessarily where the action is. Um, and, and sometimes these grand buildings are rather, they achieve, they're counterproductive, they achieve exactly the opposite of perhaps what they're meant to do. And certainly that's true in Kosovo, in the capital Pristina. Um, in Georgia, the EU is currently based on a hilltop, very symbolically overlooking the rest of the population down below, um, in an old um, Soviet palace. Um, and somehow this creates the wrong sense. Um, this goes back to what I said at the beginning about physical architecture mattering as well. Um, the other difference I think you could make with this kind of new service is recognizing that communications are important and that there are problems often, especially in conflicted societies, of isolation, which is either geographic or, or sort of um, virtual. And um, actually a diplomatic presence, certainly the EU's presence, can be a hub for information flows. And this is a, a, a good way of, of maximizing the... Uh, the benefits of a delegation. Um, the EU, in the EU's case also, it is a powerful, and it's certainly true of some nation states, it's a powerful pole of attraction. Um, people want to be close to it, uh, either to travel to the EU, or it's a, it's a resource, or um, it's somewhere where people want to go. And, and perhaps the di diplomatic delegation needs to provide better channels of access and mechanisms to exploit this pole of attraction. Um, so let me finally suggest six recommendations um, for, which are aimed at the external action service, the European version, but mi which, might, which might also give some ideas about how diplomatic functions more generally could evolve. Firstly, that the new European Union delegations, as they will become, should operate as networks of local and field teams, uh, as well as regional offices, and I've called them Euros, or European Regional Offices, you know how the EU likes acronyms. Um, and rather than concentrating all their resources in a single headquarters, these should be headed by European Action Representatives, or EARS responsible for the overall coordination of different types of policy, humanitarian assistance, trade, aid, and so on. Secondly, that the service should improve the mainstreaming of human rights into foreign policies, recruiting dedicated staff in field roles, um, and these staff should implement a broad definition of human rights, including freedom of movement. And in the EU case, this would mean establishing joint facilities for visa applications, visa kiosks, and a common electronic platform for online applications. Thirdly, that union delegations should be a virtual as well as a physical actual service associated with freedom of information and knowledge building. So information portals which give people access to uh, the resources of information and culture and knowledge about the EU um, would certainly be a, 
an improvement. Fourthly, that the public diplomacy remit should include improving opportunities for, and facilities for student and professional exchanges. The EU has had an enormous success with its Erasmus programme. Maybe some of you are on Erasmus programmes here. And as well as stimulating cross-border study, um, this is a vehicle for institutionalising a permanent series of academic and practitioner debates. This is something which a diplomatic delegation could also cover. Um, budget is going to be very important uh, in the negotiations about the external action service and my argument would be that on the budget the important thing is to provide funds for discretionary um, spending. Sometimes they're needed on the ground, not in headquarters, capitals if you like, um, in order to meet humanitarian needs. And that finally, and this is important, that for Europe, for the European Union, its new service needs to have a distinct brand or ethos. Um, this is to set it apart from member states. It has to fulfill a different and, if you like, complementary function. And this should be reflected in its attitude to staffing. So um, staffing, staff seconded should um, undergo training in human security for a start. So to summarise, um, in trying to perform a novel role in the world, uh, and as well as being a sort of post-national polity, the EU actually at the moment relies on rather conventional tools of diplomacy, as I would argue do nation states. Um, these conventional tools are elite knowledge, contacts, discrete application of political pressure, using, using trade and aid as levers. Um, and forging partnerships with rather limited constituencies of, of actors, whether in civil society or private sector organizations. Um, and often this uh, limited uh, preferred circle uh, is confined to those who can speak English and understand Brussels procedures, which is relatively few. And what the external action service at the EU has the chance to now design uh, it offers it the chance to bend, if you like, traditional diplomatic functions into a new shape which res uh, reflects its rather distinctive role and power in international relations and which can project core values, not just interests, and perhaps ensure that its diplomats are more effective in tackling foreign policy issues. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, um, I talked not wholly frivolously about the, the internal role of the uh, action service at the beginning. Um, I think there's a contrast between my ideas and those we just articulated, which we'll certainly be able to explore later on. But, but now we, we, we come um, to the more currently diplomatic side of, of, of the argument. We were very lucky to have the Costa Rican ambassador, Pilar Saborio de Rocafort, with, with us. And she's a person of, of, of a very um, uh, varied and, if I may say so, cosmopolitan personal background, um, both from her studies, which have been in, in, in Italy and, um, uh, and America, and, and even in the University of Cambridge. I'm not sure whether that's going up or down, but, but, but then, anyway, um, that is, that is her, her, her career. Um, and she now, um, having worked for a number of, of international agencies, is the Costa Rican ambassador here in London, and she's at the same time ambassador to, to Iceland. 
That was uh, obviously a very, um, uh, very intelligent disposition to have with the two countries with um, major banking crises at the same time <laughs> um, being represented by uh, having you as the Costa Rican representative. I I'm sure you know a great deal more about banking legislation now in both countries than you did a couple of years ago. But it's, it's not that which is your principal conversation this evening. Um, do you agree with what's just been said? Yes, to, to, it, to a certain extent, although obviously being ambassador of Costa Rica, I come from a very different experience and the situation you know, in the area where I come from, whilst we having, you know, uh, we're going, undergoing an integration process, it's still in the early stages. But um, I would like to start tonight um, by thanking LSE and the Friedrich Ebert Foundation for organizing this panel discussion and for inviting me to take part in it. Um, the assumption seems to be under, underlying the discussion this evening is that it's in important ways we're moving towards a world political system that is supposed to failure. And by that I mean an increase, there is an increasingly common view in some quarters that a world of dangerous and self-centered intergovernmental relations is giving way to a more benign era of supranationalism in which reasoning men and women, such as diplomats, work in a reasonable way to solve increasingly globalized political problems, whether this is transnational drugs running, arms trading, migration, climate change, or whatever. In short, what, what are being called global public goods and bads. This conjures up a world that is potentially less dangerous than an earlier Hobbesian state of nature, or, or of war against all, or bluntly put, of great power politics. A world which, in a sense, turns the modern diplomat into a hero or heroine. And whilst I would welcome this, I'm not so sure that we've reached that situation yet, or that diplomacy is really an alternative to statecraft. In my short talk tonight, I would like to give a sense that diplomacy remains largely at the state, at the service of statecraft, even for a country such as Costa Rica that isn't a great power. And how a country such as mine forms its uh, shapes its foreign policy, and thus the functions of its diplomatic missions to maximize the interests of the state. But how in doing so, Costa the Co Costa Rican foreign policy has diverted from the traditional approach of focusing mainly on state security against external military threats to take what we could recognize as a human security approach to foreign policy. From the Costa Rican perspective, the goal of traditional security, of, uh, the role of traditional security in terms of safeguarding the nation state isn't necessarily at odds with a human security approach. Yes, Leviathan is supposed to protect from this external threats, but it's also from internal ones, and above all, it must not be a threat at, you know, on its own. As you know, Costa Rica is a middle-income country of four and a half million people, mostly known for its commitment to peaceful coexistence, having no army, its rich biodiversity, and most recently, thanks to our number one spot on the Happy Planet Index, it seems that we are the happiest people in the world. The country currently has 44 diplomatic missions, seven of them multilateral ones. Incidentally, 15 of them headed by women. Our missions are quite small. Our permanent mission to the UN in New York, even at a time where, where we are temporary members of the Security uh, Council, has a diplomatic staff of only 15. Our largest bilateral mission, Washington DC, 
has 14 diplomats, this including two trade uh, experts seconded from the Ministry of Foreign Trade. My own mission, an all-female one actually, consists of three diplomats and two administrative assistants. As with any state, our most bilateral and most important bilateral relations are with those with our immediate and regional neighbors and with the superpowers of the day. In our <coughs> case, again, the, the US, China, the EU. But we're also keeping an eye, obviously, on rising economic powerhouses. Irrespective of size, though, all our missions work in the traditional sense understood by the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, that is to advance and promote the interest of Costa Rica and the host country. But there is no doubt that a more stable world with less violent conflicts is good for all, but in particularly for a country like mine with no army. So Costa Rica, not only because of its values, has been very active in the multilateral arena around issues of disarmament, human security, human rights, and environmental sustainability. Costa Rica and the UK enjoy very amicable relations. Trade and cultural exchanges are there, but mostly dealt with directly by the Ministry of Trade or an investment uh, promotion agency. The London mission, however, does a bit more than organize ministers' visits and look after distressed travelers who lose their passports, as in his book, Independent Diplomat Dispatches from an Unaccountable Elite. Karl Ross suggests it's all that modern, a modern embassy seems to be useful for. Dealing with global public goods and bads require engaging at the bilateral level on what are multilateral issues, particularly, again, for a diplomatic service that is small, such as ours. And a substantial part of what we do in London is cooperating or working with the Foreign Office in promoting on the international arena those issues of mutual interest you know, that pr to provide, if you want, uh, global public goods. I can think here of the work we've done with respect to you know, uh, getting a, an arms trade treaty to fruition, hopefully by next month, or the work we've done together on climate change. So therefore, working on global issues, from our point of view, straddles both the bilateral and the multilateral divide and the traditional or national versus the human security approaches to statecraft. I hope to illustrate this point by going over some of Costa Rica's main foreign policy concerns at the turn of the millennium. In the early 80s, as some of you may recall, Costa Rica was the only democracy in Central America. At the time, it was in the interest of Costa Rica to see a transition from dictatorial regimes to democratic governments, both because of our democratic principles and values but also because like-minded neighbors are less likely to be a threat to one's own country. As a result, then, the country devoted most of its diplomatic efforts to solving conflicts that were in great measure fueled by the struggle to shift the balance of power in what was, as we now know, the last decade of the Cold War. The Costa Rican government at the time worked hard to promote dialogue and peace talks favoring this rather than the military approach that external actors you know, preferred. These efforts actually resulted in President Arias being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1987. Today, this, the region is basically democratic. 
However, as the current crisis in Honduras shows, democratic institutions are still very weak. And in an effort to strengthen the incipient democratic institutions in the region, Central American countries have entered into a process of regional integration called the, Central, called the Central American Integration System, or CICA for short. With this idea, just like the one that supported European integration, we would like to integrate the region so that the likelihood of armed conflict or internal conflict in the region uh, diminishes. The difference with Europe, obviously, is that conflicts in Central America were internal, but again, the rationale was that regional integration would solid help solidify the nascent democratic institutions. Currently, the region is actually negotiating an association agreement with the EU. If signed next, um, next year during the, the Spanish presidency, it would be finally the first bilateral regional agreement, you know, or association agreement that the EU actually manages to sign or to bring to fruition. Um, I, however, don't want to give the impression that our diplomatic efforts are focused solely on regional issues. Costa Rica broke with Central American tradition in 2007 when we established diplomatic relations with the People's, Repo People's Republic of China. We also are in part of some of the Central American um, institutions such as the Central American Parliament or the Central American Court of Justice. And, this, and we are not part of them because we feel that they would not, if anything, strengthen or, or advance the institutions that we already have on our, of our own. At the, global at the global level, given the limitations that state sovereignty places on multilateral diplomacy, Brian Urquhart, the famous uh, British uh, diplomat, recognizes that, and I quote here, Pending a true democratization of the world organization, it would be a major step for the Security Council and the UN as a whole if more, if more nations were willing to frame their foreign policy with regard to the li larger interest, international interest, I'm sorry. And there are already a, a number of countries that do this, the Nordic and some European countries, Costa Rica and Canada amongst them, that actually try to conduct foreign policy in this spirit. Is this a new diplomacy, therefore, that Costa Rica practices? Yes, in the way that it deploys reason in the service of solving collective action problems. No, in the sense that we're hoping our actions will produce positive spin-offs at home. In short, however, it is diplomacy at the service of statecraft, but informed by human security. Our efforts in terms of environmental protection actually provide a good example of this. So let me just tell you. Costa Rica, as you can imagine, is not a major emitter of greenhouse gases, but it is playing a leading role in preparation for Copenhagen. And I'm often asked why Costa Rica takes such steps in protecting it, its environment when it will be adversely affected by the effects of global warming, whether, frankly, we behave or not. The answer is that, obviously, there are various reasons why it is to our advantage to do so. One, from an international perspective, small countries with high moral capital can actually provide more moral leadership for big ones. And one can often advance initiatives with a legitimacy that others may not be able to enjoy. And think here of the role that the Nordic countries have played with respect to foreign aid. From a national perspective, 
since we're not going to be a military or economic power, we might as well use our comparative advantage as a moral power. It allows us to punch above the weight to use them, you know, much overused <laughs> sentence. Actually, just last week, President Arias addressed the UN Summit on Climate Change on behalf of middle-income countries. Again, we were chosen because, if you want, of our international image. There were only five other heads of states invited to, uh, you know, to address the summit. Our policy has allowed us to, then, you know, in terms of environmental protection, also our policy has allowed us to develop a very profitable ecotourism industry. It's provided us with good reputation, and it has helped it further our environmental security. So, to conclude, I mean, reality, in matters of global security, the greater good is also our own, which reinforces, again, my broader observation that this, about the synergies that exist between good diplomacy and good statecraft. Lastly, perhaps, from a personal perspective as a Costa Rican diplomat, there is an added benefit to this approach to foreign policy. Remembering Sir Henry Wharton comment that an ambassador is an honest man sent to lie abroad for the good of his country, I can say this. Number one, I'm not a man. And number two, I have never had to lie on behalf of my country. Thank you. On the only occasion when I heard a diplomatic colleague of mine tell a clear lie to, to a colleague, it was in response to a question, do you mind if I ask you a, a, an obscene question? To which he said, I don't mind at all, just as long as you must expect an obscene answer. He then lied absolutely to the man who put this question. And when I taxed him with it afterwards, he said, well, I warned him. I warned him. I told him he would get an obscene answer. And what could be more obscene than an untruth? So <laughs> diplomats do, in some circumstances, find ways to, to, to be economical with the truth, perhaps. But I'm, I do apologize for the um, undiplomatic question I put you at the beginning as to whether you had agreed with the first speaker or not. And I, I thought, if I may say so, it was a very diplomatic response to say yes, and then to say at the end, I'm not entirely sure whether you do agree, but um, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to talk about that later. And our final speaker in this first round, who we're very pleased to welcome here today, um, is a man who doesn't lie for his country, and that's um, Mr. Baumgarten, the uh, German ambassador, who's a very distinguished German um, diplomat who's um, uh, been an ambassador in Spain and, and before that in Nicaragua and uh, has a great deal of experience uh, in Russia as well. Um, perhaps it will be very interesting to hear from him what, what the um, view of the Russian government uh, in his understanding is on these matters. Uh, are they um, advocates of a human security approach to international relations? Um, perhaps um, you could also tell us whether you think that um, German approaches to these issues are, are going to change under the new government or not. Uh, um, uh, that's an even more undiplomatic question than the one I probably put to, to your preceding speaker. But thank you very much for coming, and we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much, and a uh, real big thank you for LSE, for you, for the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung to have put here on the table this very timely and interesting subject. I try to answer first the questions about what I personally think about the theme. And uh, as diplomats are there not to lie, but they represent their country and the head of state, they obey their government and they service their clients. So let me say three comments on the title of the seminar. The title could read, be read to suggest that diplomacy is an alternative to statecraft, 
I think this is just the contrary. Diplomacy has to be statecraft, and statecraft normally has to be diplomatic. So diplomacy is the art or the practice of conducting international relations, and relations change. They particularly change very quickly in the globalized world, becoming much broader than before. So part of this art is always to adapt to a changing environment, and the question mark is misleading. Of course diplomacy, both at a micro level in the work of the individual diplomat and at a micro level, issues and structures, it is changing all the time. Keynes once said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Third, diplomacy is about much more than adapting just to a fluid environment. It is also about shaping this environment in a way that suits the interests of a state and its citizens. But now we get into two complications. First of all, who defines the interest? And this is also changing. There were times where interests were very easy to define. It was the interest of the monarch or of some leading people, charismatic leaders, dictators. In a democracy, it's much more difficult. There is a big number of people shaping interest, and in the end, you need democratic legitimacy if you talk about interests. You get into the old political question of Rousseau, volonté générale, volonté de tous. What are you representing if you represent the people? Are you representing, as some people try to do, humankind? Did you ask humankind if you want to be represented by you? So maybe you have to be more modest and try to represent just your country and those who are legitimately elected in that country. Therefore, I think tradition and change in diplomacy are complementary. The traditional task remains the same. Achieving this task depends on ever-changing circumstances. The second complication is, today, nearly everybody cannot do anything in diplomacy alone. And I think even the United States, which is certainly the most powerful in the world, has, to been, has been learning that going alone can become very awkward. Sometimes I read idealistic approaches saying that we have to enforce this or that on another government, on other people. This is a view which is very typical for the strong, for the powerful states. Powerful states tend to overestimate their power anyway, but at least they say so as if they can impose and enforce things. I think Pila knows very well, coming from a smaller state, that imposing anything on your neighbors on other states, not to speak about the more powerful, is something which is far away from reality. So diplomacy is about convincing, not about enforcement. And therefore, I think when you send armies or when you enforce protectorates, like in Kosovo, you cross the line between what is diplomacy and what is enforcement. I would make a big difference between the two. Enforcement is not diplomacy. Enforcement is enforcement. And therefore, it is still true that when you send an army, it may be true that diplomacy lost the game and not diplomacy is going on. Mary, you won my heart, but you did not won, sorry, not my mind. <laughs> you spoke about Article 41, not to interfere. I admit I'm a Westphalian. I think it is still true because certainly, first of all, 
diplomacy always implied interfering, but with legal means and by conviction and convincing others into internal affairs of others. You are accredited to do that, but you are in the limits of what you are accredited for, and if you just mix into an election campaign of another country, you can be thrown out, and I think rightly so. This is there not because you are a coward. You cannot say anything about uh, the interior politics of the country you are sent to. No, it's because it's the protection of the weaker. And particularly in Central America, living in Nicaragua, for example, in the city, standing in the city, you see a hill. And on that hill, there is a wonderful palace. And this palace is the residence of the American ambassador, overlooking the whole city. And there were times when the Somosas were ruling, when policy could be dictated from that palace. This was eviction. This was interference in internal affairs, which is thought that Article 41 is forbidding. That the smaller one, the less powerful one, is protected against the bigger one, the big neighbor, to give dictations. So I know it is also used, and living, having lived in the old Soviet Union, it's also used as a shield for dictators. Whenever we intervened in human rights questions in the old Soviet Union, certainly we were asked by the foreign ministry to uh, no longer insist on interfering in internal affairs. But this was very much on the foreground, because at that time they underwrote Helsinki. And somebody who underwrites Helsinki, somebody who underwrites the Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations, he, with that, makes it no longer an internal affairs. So you could really keep the principle of not interfering in internal affairs, because insisting on human rights in a country who underwrote the Declaration on Human Rights, this is not an internal affair. So you can intervene, but you cannot go there and play police in that country. That's a different thing. The human security approach. You spoke about that it is less institutional. I always hear this in Britain. This seems to be very British, to be less institutional. I hear this about... We're against uh, European institutions, not British institutions. <laughs> uh, this, uh, I think that this is typical in a country where you have a very civilized debating culture for hundreds of years, an evolution of the constitutional development. But in most other countries of the world, you need a very close-cut and very clear institutional framework. Institutions matter because you don't have another safety net. So the institution of the Vienna Convention, the institution of the diplomatic law, is the safety net for the places which are absolutely not that secure as they are in Britain. If you are in Britain, I wouldn't need the Vienna Convention in, in, in the end. I need no special protection. But you need it in all the other places of the world. And you would have a very bad, bad precedence if you don't have it here. That's the only ground to have it. You said foreign policy is no longer an elite activity. Lamentably, I think it's wrong. Lamentably, most people don't care too much about foreign policy. I would wish that foreign policy is seen by most of the populations, at least in Europe, as something which is bothering everybody. Because if you want economic uh, development, you can't do that in a globalized world just in your country. You have to be strong enough in Europe and you have to act globally. You cannot do anything for 
peace and peace of mind and peace in your place where you live depends on peace everywhere. You cannot be very peaceful if there is no peace in other places of the world. And if it's about environment, we all know the air is going around the world and the climate change does not stop at any border. So I would wish foreign policy would no longer be an elite affair. I lament that it is still the case and that even in parliaments it is sometimes difficult to find somebody who wants to care about foreign policy. Most people think I get my voters when I do something about financial and uh, social policy. They should care much more, but they don't. Certainly it has to do also that there's a, it's requiring professional skills. This is sometimes underestimated. People think diplomacy is something for amateurs. You need professional skills for that because you need analyzing complexity. You need being able thinking in networks. And as you said, there are much more actors now, but most of the actors also lamentably are looking on a single or limited scope issue. And this cacophony of a lot of actors, for example NGOs, who act on single or limited scope issues, do not form together a coherent policy. And therefore this is not yet where it should be. It would be much better if it would be there, but it is not. Therefore I would be careful not to call all the structures which are instrumental to diplomacy that they already are diplomacy. I would make this difference. Some structures are instrumental and very, very valuable, but they don't uh, have all the scope which you need. So I would make a difference between international activities, which is very broad, and diplomacy, which is much more narrow. Liberal interventionism is certainly a very moral approach if you have the power. But if you are a missionary, and use this as a, for a right as a pretext to act on behalf of those you did not ask. This may lead to quite bad consequences. And so to be a bit provocative, to bring minds working, it may sometimes be better to let a bad situation be as it is if the price for that is a war. Because first of all, you never know what comes out of a war, and the suffering in a war is often much, much worse than anything what you can predict before. And to make this decision is a deeply moral decision, because you may decide, yes, the situation is such that a war is worse, but I insist it must be the last resort and not the first aid. The EU service, or let's say, first an example, because uh, human security is not just an abstract thing. It involves people, and often quite untractable people. And this means, in diplomacy, one of the highest skills you need is working on peace negotiations. And we know there are quite a lot of places where it's still necessary. You have to talk to all sides, you shake hands with war criminals, you shake hands with perpetrators of human rights, with criminals, and you have to talk to them to stop this. And if you are not able to do that, then, then please don't try diplomacy. Then you become better a soldier and shoot these people. But I think then you won't get peace. That's a big problem. So diplomacy is changing, yes. We have to manage, we have to shape globalization. But certainly a strong and united Europe may, the only way, may be the only way to make us strong enough 
to be part of shaping this. Any country in Europe, not Germany, not Britain, not France, not to speak of all the other members of the EU, are strong enough to bring, bring a real big contribution to shaping globalization. This is possible only if we come together. We have to promote and practice cooperative multilateralism, and this may sometimes uh, also include robust measures, but as I thought, said, with a lot of care, being very, very careful about asking for intervention. If you would intervene wherever it would be necessary out of moral grounds, you would have 200 wars at once today. So either we hang together or we hang separately. The economic crisis, disarmament and arms control, limiting nuclear proliferation, pandemics, global governance and climate change have to be tackled. So we have to act together. It's a multitude of actors. Anyway, we should also deal with the media, for example. The media is a very special problem. They are central for freedom. We should support media wherever they are, and the Internet Revolution, I think, has made media an instrument for freedom much more than it was before, because no country in the world can now stop the media from coming around. But sometimes the media are also instrumental for disinformation and hate. I speak here, think here about the role of the radio and the Rwanda massacres, where in the radio they were asking for killing the neighbors. How is diplomacy responding? Certainly the capitals are today in very direct and frequent contact, but those contacts are often short and under enormous time pressure. So in a peaceful environment, as an embassy in a European country, certainly we have to support European decision-making. We have to do a lot of networking. We have to give an analytical background in the reporting because uh, when the statesmen talk to each other, they know something about the other side, but they don't know the context. And they are asking the context, particularly now in the crisis, we were asking much more about the context in which politics are made here in Britain, for example. And you have to do a lot of public diplomacy. This means try to be understood. Try your country to be understood. And in the end, what you always need is flexibility, adaptability, because not everything is foreseeable. And we always need quick answers if the unforeseen happens. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Very robust defense of, uh, of uh, not entirely, but largely traditional view of, uh, of diplomacy. Um, I'm, I'm sorry I interrupt you on the subject of the British and their institutions, but it really is a theme of mine that the British have a superstitious reverence for their own institutions, but not for anybody else's, um, which I personally greatly regret. Um, but I, I, I think it's not to do with institutions, it's to do with uh, uh, something that's a bit more complicated in the British psyche. Um, what, what I'm going to suggest now is that we have something like half an hour of, um, uh, of, of questions. Um, probably I'll, I'll take... Uh, a cluster of three or four together, then give the opportunity for a first response, and then we'll see how we go. Uh, I'll be finishing at about eight o'clock, something like that. Um, when you get up and ask your question, then obviously it will help other people if you um, a say who you are and, and ask your question relatively shortly to give the opportunity for, for others to succeed you. Um, and there is a microphone there. Who's the first person to catch my, my eye? 
in the front here. Can you come down, bring it to the front? Right in the front here. Over there. Hello. <coughs> Can you hear? Yes. Yeah, my name is Christoph von Lutitz. I'm German, but I've lived in this country much longer than in Germany. And I was very intrigued by what Dr. Martin said about um, uh, about creating understanding, because I think it was Albert Einstein who said, peace is not sustained by force, it is developed by understanding. And I think if people from different backgrounds, and I work with people from very different backgrounds in this country, I only do charity work, if they understand each other better, then there would be much less friction. But I have two very under-diplomatic questions also. One is to, to um, Ambassador Saborio, and um, I'm just wondering how much what happens in neighboring countries influences your, um, the way you can act outside your country, perhaps put it that way. And then I have another question which is not too dissimilar to Ambassador Boomgarten. Um, the recent developments in, in German politics, um, almost coincidental with what seems to be happening in Ireland, changing the structure of, I assume, a little bit the structure of diplomacy um, from coming from the EU, how much does that influence um, what, what you are doing? So um, we'll take one or two more questions and, and perhaps when you respond you, you can briefly summarize the question as a question just to, to remind the audience what you're replying to. Any, any others? Yes, lady over there. Hi, um, I'm a LSE postgraduate student in international relations. Um, this is addressed towards ambassadors. You're anonymous. Do oh, I'm sorry, Amy Markell. <laughs> um, ambassador Saborio and Ambassador Boomgarden. What are the majority of backgrounds and necessarily the process of becoming an ambassador in your countries? And what are their backgrounds? For example, I've worked for the State Department in the United States, and most people who reach the rank of ambassador have been consecutively within the Foreign Service for at least 15 to 20 years. Is it the same case um, in Germany and Costa Rica, or do people come there after other careers? Thank you. The card of profile of um, ambassadors. Gentleman over there. Hi. Um, I mean, you talk about name. Sorry, uh, Peace Little uh, from We Are Change Media. Um, you talk about uh, increasing uh, human rights, and yet it seems to me that the institutions of government are becoming increasingly more powerful to the point where we can't even protest outside our own parliament here within a mile of our own parliament without permission. I've been arrested several times for just holding a peace sign outside our own parliament. So. I mean, these, these institutions are, are just becoming monolithic. There's, there's no way for the people to have any say in what's going on and how we're governed. I mean, the Lisbon Treaty was voted against by, the, by Ireland, and they just get to vote again. So how many times are they going to vote until they... Is it going to keep going until they vote yes? Good. Um, perhaps one more. Uh, if we don't get one for this round, then, then perhaps I'll ask the... the um, panel to speak, and then I'll say something about the Lisbon Treaty. Um, uh, perhaps we can go in the reverse way. Ambassador. Um, yes. 
As you said, you were mentioning once again peace by understanding, not by force. I would only say one word to that, because for understanding you normally need peace. If there is no peace, understanding gets extremely difficult, because the state of mind is not open for understanding. And therefore, this is a kind of a feedback cycle, and feedback cycles are complicated. That's all I say for that. So it is not that simple. It's good, it's true, that if you have peace by understanding would be wonderful, but sometimes you need peace for understanding. Uh, you were asking of the, about the recent development in German politics and the changing structures coming from the EU and uh, the influence on my work. First of all, I interpret this, first of all, as the effect of the elections, and this may be also answering the question about the career. In Germany, we have a tradition of career diplomatic service. Sometimes one, two, three persons coming out of politics but having international politics background for years uh, enter into the service in another way, but normally you have to apply. Many people are there. It does not depend on what you made, but you have to have an academic uh, degree. Then you have to stand a concourse. Normally we get about 1,500 to 2,000 people applying. We have around about 30 to 35 places per year. And if you are better than the other 1,965 from 2,000, you are in. And uh, my career is now 35 years old, never regretted it. So this means that changes in the election are not affecting me directly. I say directly because certainly the instructions you get from the legitimate government, which will be formed now after a democratic process of elections, will define what policy is it's doing and I'm to obey. This is my role. But uh, as far as the EU is concerned, I refer this to the possibility of the EU foreign election service. Uh, here I think that uh, as long as we still have unanimity, which means a kind of veto power in foreign policy, we will have a more and more European po foreign policy. It is my experience from working in Brussels working groups, for example, that 80 to 90 percent of the common foreign and security policy is really common, but there is the rest of the 15 to 10 percent which countries see as essential, and these are the big questions, which they reserve still for national policy. As long as this is the case, there is still a role also for the national diplomatic services. I see no way now, and you could, can say what they want, there is no way to a kind of a European superstate with one foreign policy formulated by a Brussels foreign minister. It is a division of labor. There are things where the, all the European countries have the same direction, I hope, on as much as possible problems. And there, the European Foreign Minister and the European Service doing the analysis will be extremely helpful, but it is not a competing factor. Maybe we can lower down part of our service, the better the other service becomes, but it will not replace it. The last question about, I think there were two questions in a way. One was about the institutionalization of government. Uh, 
you have the feeling that they sometimes become too overwhelming, particularly if it is about protesting and human rights. Yes, this is a problem which is there in modern societies because uh, on the one hand, the instruments for the state to become powerful are very far-reaching. On the other hand, the state becomes less powerful because in uh, many aspects it cannot really control very much and there's in some countries a kind of will to control more. In Germany, by the result of the election, the Free Democratic Party is coming into the government, which will uh, insist as one of its big points for more civil rights. Even they will try to get back some of the anti-terror laws, for example. This is always also a question for diplomats. After the uh, protests at the G20, I had to write a letter to protest in the name of a German citizen, for example, for the treatment which was given to him. This happens between friendly governments. It is not just a question to do that in Zimbabwe. I do this also here in Britain if it's, it happens. But it has to be done through the channels of parties and of elections and legitimized policy. Protest is legitimate, but changing policy needs majority. And fighting for majorities is sometimes not that much, particularly in uh, Germany at least, in the younger generation. Many don't go into the parties, don't play there to make politics really. They think it's much better to go into one NGO for one issue. But for making politics, you need to be in a party, work there and do it. Uh, the second question you put was, how often do you have to vote until you get a yes in Ireland? Uh, I hope for the yes, but this is why I say that referenda are something which we have to respect. It is in the Irish constitution, so it has to be respected. This does not hinder me to think it is absolutely not helpful to, be ref to have referenda on the results of international negotiations. If you have a referendum on the result which is ready for all Europe, there could be a referendum where all Europeans take part and where the majority of all voters in all over Europe would count. But if you have a negotiated thing between different countries, how would you then uh, get to any form of result of a negotiation? Because whenever you have one result, you can get the next one who has to ratify, voting, saying no. And when everybody has ratified, then maybe we say, now we want to go back to the original result. Now we vote and say no. You will never get a result on such a basis. Either you have a negotiation process between states, then you should ratify it by parliament, or you have referenda, but then you should have it all over for all who are uh, in this. Anyway, this is uh, uh, just a view I have. You could have other views which are absolutely legitimate. Would you like to? Yes, thank you. Um, now, there's respect to your questions, what happens to Costa Rica? How does it affect what happens in Central America? I'm assuming you're referring to perhaps to the current crisis. You're referring perhaps to the current crisis in Central America. I'm assuming when your, your question on how that is affected. Well, um, it depends. Uh, actually, in certain areas, it affects us quite a bit. Um, for example, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Central America is currently negotiating an association agreement with the, U with the EU. And 
it was pretty much at the final stages, and again, hopefully to be signed um, early next year. Well, because of what's happened in Central America, the Swedish presidency of the EU has actually decided to stall the negotiations until um, the, the, you know, the constitutional order is restored in um, Honduras. We are a bit concerned now what's going to happen with respect, I mean, how will the EU interpret as restoration of the civil, of the a constitutional order until President Zelaya is reinstated or actually will they recognize the result of the elections that will take place you know, in November and so on. So in that respect, yes. Um, in other areas, obviously, it doesn't. I mean, in terms of bilateral relations we have with other countries, it doesn't, and in a, in a way, if anything, strengthens our position in the sense that we are often seen as the voice of reason and therefore, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, of, of exchanges going on between ourselves and, and, you know, and other countries. I mean, I, I get calls here you know, from the Foreign Office on what is the Costa Rican take and, and so on. Um, and obviously, you know, President Arias is actually acting as mediator and what is called the San Jose Accord. Ideally, it's the, you know, the route to follow. I mean, it hasn't happened because because both sides of the you know of the equation in Honduras have you know rejected the some of the uh, you know points. Um, so diplomatic uh, the, for the for your question, I'm assuming you're American, and yes, you said, and um, well, Costa Rica has as the U.S. a mixed, if you want, um, you know. When it comes to the ambassadors mixed, you, some of our ambassadors are career ambassadors, diplomatic career ambassadors, some are political appointees. In my case, I'm a political appointee. However, it's, you know, I don't, personally, I don't belong to any party. I've never contributed to, you know, a, a presidential campaign and so on. So what we're trying to do, because of the size of our, our diplomatic uh, service, what has been happening is that more people, rather than being appointed as you know, paying political favors, they're being appointed because of their particular skills. I do have a background in international relations, you know, and I have a master's in development and so on. So, so you know, I had, if you want, and I had worked actually for the Agency of International Development many years ago in the, in the U.S. in the Costa Rican uh, Foreign Investment Promotion Agency and so on. So yes, um, our, and our, our ambassador in Brussels is another case in point. He is there because he is he specialized in international trade, and he negotiated CAFTA. He was a chief negotiator of CAFTA for us. So he's in Brussels now, obviously, because of the you know association agreement. Um, now, um, with respect to your question on on human rights and so on, uh, I agree with what my colleague, the German ambassador, has said. If anything, um, what is interesting though in Costa Rica, the passing of CAFTA, there was tremendous opposition, it was, and the Putin society was very polarized. And although the country uh, had signed CAFTA, uh, its ratification through Congress was actually, there was so much debate about it that ultimately, if you want, by popular, you know, um, a claim we had to have a referendum and it passed 
narrowly, but in that, so if anything, the, what you would think about Costa Rican societies, or, or you would think about Costa Rica, is that civil society, it, it, it's stronger than it was actually in the past. Um, and I think so far this is it. Good, thanks very much. And, and Mary, and please don't confine yourself just to the questions, because you, there were some things said by the other speakers that you might want to react to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, first of all, can I just respond to the question on institutions and monolithic or, or otherwise, um, and pick up on something that we perhaps talked about earlier in the debate. Um, institutions do matter. I think Brendan said that. I agree. Um, my only um, comment in respect of, of the EU process of institution building is if you put institutions at the start of the process, and certainly in terms of the external action service, you get a kind of skewed perspective, and that perhaps a more balanced, instead of an institutional logic driving this, a more balanced uh, view would be to look at the effects on the ground and the, and the impacts on, on individuals. And coming to your question about um, uh, the difficulties of uh, monolithic institutions, if institutions are important, they're also important for the legitimacy and the trust that we have in them. And I think that's where the failing comes. There is a, an institutional crisis in many domains, whether it's um, economic um, actors, banks, and so on, government institutions. Um, but even, I would suggest, um, diplomatic services, maybe they don't get the visibility that the others, but we need to be able to trust these institutions and feel that they respond to our needs. Um, and this idea that perhaps it's a sort of uh, domaine réservé, and the uh, German ambassador alluded, said he didn't agree with me that foreign policy was an elite activity. I think it is, because I think it's for too long that is one institution that has sort of shut out perhaps popular voices and said this is something where you need to be an expert, you need to be an insider. Um, and people do care about foreign policy. They care deeply, but perhaps they haven't had the channels and the mechanisms for being able to get involved, except at moments of crisis like an Iraq war. Um, and I mean, certainly if you look at the, the EU experience, I always slightly distrust these figures, I have to say, but often cited is the fact that the Eurobarometer polls um, give the popularity of European foreign policy as terribly high amongst EU publics, 76% support a common foreign policy. Probably if you ask them in the next question whether they would support um, much more detailed sort of collective policy making on individual issues, you get a different percentage. But that at least suggests that people are interested not only in, in foreign policy, but they're interested in collective solutions and a different kind of institutionalization, perhaps, than we've had under the nation state. So I think the legitimacy of, of institutions matters, and that's something that needs to be considered in, in uh, worrying, if you like, how diplomacy uh, evolves. Good. Um, can I uh, abuse the Chairman's privilege to give an answer on the, the Lisbon Treaty, which is, if there's a no this time, I think there's no chance of there being any other referendum. I think that will be the end of it. Um, but I'd like to put well, maybe a slightly different view, which is that um, the democratically elected government of Ireland signed the treaty, the constitutional treaty, because it thought it was in the Irish national interest. Nobody forced them to do it. They were fully participating in that, in that procedure. Um, they found that as a result of their own incompetence, 
um, demonstrable misconceptions about abortion, about homosexuality, about oh, about uh, uh, the subscription of, of Irishmen from Galway to fight in Iraq had been very influential in the first no vote. It seems to me democratically it was the duty of the government to give the um, o opportunity for a, a decision to be reversed. I don't think that, that there's anything particularly democratic about saying that a referendum's result can't possibly be reversed. Um, and I think that's an odd view of democracy. I, I, there are different views about having the referendum in the first place. But it doesn't seem to me that once the referendum has come to a particular conclusion, that necessarily a democratic government that takes a different view isn't entitled to try and reverse that. And if the Irish people find democratically absolutely illegitimate the idea of this question being put to them again, they'll certainly vote no. If they vote yes, then at least as far as the procedure of another referendum is concerned, obviously they're prepared to accept that. That was a point I, I want to make specifically about that, not about the first part of, uh, of, of your remarks. Um, are there any more uh, questions? Yes, there. Um, there there'll be a, uh, oh, sorry, over there, and then we'll come to you in a moment. Yes. The presentation which just was given uh, is, of course, um, Name, please, if we can. Uh, uh, yeah, my name is Lamche. Uh, I live in London, but I have a German passport. Oh. I'm a Silesian, uh, so that complicates matters. <coughs> I, um, uh, the presentation which uh, you just, uh, the chair, uh, gave, um, is of course coming from a um, representative as well not just an academic uh, uh, individual, uh, of um, a nation, of an identity, of a sovereignty, um, which has extraordinary historical skills in terms of um, um, experiences in government and relief in occupied areas. Now, uh, the definition of this uh, I take, of course, from uh, American uh, foreign policy because uh, when they foresaw Eisenhower uh, that uh, they had to play a bigger role in Europe, uh, they formed uh, GAIOA, uh, that means, uh, in short, uh, government, in occupied, uh, government and relief in occupied areas. And the Brits, of course, the Americans had learned that from the Brits over, God knows, uh, 200 years, India and you name it. Now, this experience in terms of uh, the interface between uh, diplomacy and uh, military uh, uh, activity is, of course, uh, um, uh, basically reduced to those uh, state entities, sovereignties, which are presently uh, uh, harbored in the Security Council, whilst all other nations in the United Nations basically are uh, devoid of the experience of uh, running uh, occupied territories and, and having to uh, cross the, the, the borders between diplomacy and, 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 and military. I now want to jump, if, you, if I'm allowed, to make my question quickly very quickly. Question, uh, one, once, uh, this quickly 40 seconds. 40 seconds. 
Last night on TV, I saw American generals assembled uh, and eating ice cream in uh, Afghanistan. They were uh, uh, circled by children which were going to get their ice cream in the next two minutes and they uh, were staring at these American generals who tried to thereby demonstrate semiotically for the world press that uh, uh, they were now entering the rearm of armed social service. Now that's very interesting. And I see a, a, a big amount of uh, presentations in uh, television and in uh, press of photos of a similar nature, which of course includes also British uh, uh, sovereign interests. Uh, uh, to uh, in contradiction to the French, German, Spanish, Italian approach, and of course, I haven't yet mentioned uh, all the other folks which are interested. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, one more down here. Yes, down here. Thank you. Um, hello, my name is Mattis Korte, and I'm a postgraduate student in international relations theory here at LSE. And I have a question uh, to Ambassador Boomgarden. Um, as the um, after the election, as the foreign ministry is pro obviously going to the free democrats in Germany, do you think, or to what extent do you think the um, overall agenda of um, German foreign politics is going to change? And a second question, as an ambassador, as far as I know, you have to um, represent your state, although you might not agree with uh, the overall agenda of, this, uh, of your country. Is that, or, uh, you, you said for how many years you were, for 30 years now you are an ambassador or more. Um, was that sometimes uh, difficult or to what extent was that difficult? Um, two more at the back, two more at the back and then that's it and then, then we'll, I'm afraid we'll have to make that the last round of questions. Hi. Um, my name's Oli, I'm a graduate in international business and I also did the Erasmus program that Dr. Martin referenced. Uh, my question is to George. Um, diplomacy and statecraft, isn't that a bit of a sideshow for the corporate mainstream media? Uh, the true powermongers are in corporations running uh, operations such as what Man Monsanto has done with uh, Codex Alimentarius coming into Europe and uh, various other corporations in different sectors, the military industrial complex, big pharma, big oil, so forth. Thanks Comments on that? Yes, thanks very much. One there. Just in front, yes. Uh, I would like to have uh, two questions, small questions for the two distinguished ambassadors. The first one is... Uh, Please speak into the microphone a bit. Uh, my name is Nam. I'm, I'm a postgraduate uh, student on international relations, RSE. I have two quest small questions for the, the two ambassadors. The first one is the relationship between the... Uh, the, uh, the practitioners world and the academic world, uh, how the, your national diplomacy uh, receive and uh, make use of the support of the ac academic circle. And the second thing is that uh, uh, I would tailor the question of the, our debate that how should diplomacy adapt to the new world environment. Uh, I remember that two years ago, about two years ago, there is a article on the New York uh, reviews of book, uh, books uh, uh, the title, uh, uh, Do We Need Diplomats? Uh, it means that um, uh, in, in recent time, we, 
diplomacy involves more and more technical expertise. And so how do your national diplomacy react to that uh, tendency? Thank you. Good. Thank you very much. Um, I think we'll allow Mary the last word since she had the first word. So, Pilar, would you like to speak and then the German ambassador and if you'll wrap up. Well, um, my other question was lovely for you, for me. Um, I, th um, I think one of the questions was, um, if I understood correctly, it was um, yours on top, um, that uh, is diplomacy really at the service of, of large economic interests? Is that what you say? Business, business. Yes, business or yeah. you know, multinational corporations yes. and so on. Um, in our case, I, well, first of all, obviously we don't have any large international corporations that are, or corporations that you could say are Costa Rican. Uh, no, however, so with respect to it directly companies, no, are, is, is the, our diplomacy affected by our economic interest and therefore trade interest? Or yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're interested in, in obviously expanding our exports and so on. If, if it weren't the case, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been so interested in entering a free trade agreement with the US or in fact, we're so interested right now in finalizing the association agreement with the EU. Um, and, it, and so, or actually supporting and fighting, let's say, the tariffs on bananas, the Latin American you know, bananas get. And, and so we're working with that at, at WTO. So yes, it, it affects economic interest in multinational corporations in terms of Costa Rica. That doesn't apply to me. Um, now, um, are diplomats necessary? I believe you're referring to the Brian Urquhart actually review of, of Ross's um, book, uh, you know, on exactly on the, whether diplomats are necessary or not. Well, if you actually read his conclusion, he says obviously that they are. They also that, well, for various reasons. I mean, not only apparently in his book, Kant doesn't necessarily provide an alternative to, you know, the role to other institutions taking, you know, in hand or performing the, the roles that diplomats do. But obviously, um, it, I think I said it earlier, it, in terms of what I do, with the way we engage with the Foreign Office, frankly, it, it has to be the embassy that does it. I mean, you know, there are other institutions in Costa Rica that engage with the UK or in, in other areas. But in terms of uh, promoting specific interests that actually do provide uh, global goods, there's no other way that to do it at the state level or interstate level. Yes. Thank you. Mr. Ambassador. Yes, I think the first question was more a statement, so I couldn't really mm -hmm. answer it. The second question, Mark Skota, foreign ministry going to the Liberals. Uh, before I came to London, it was part of my job description to inform Parliament about our foreign policy, so all the parties were present. And we normally in Germany have much more differences between single MPs' opinions than between the parties. So let's say CDU, SPD, and Liberals, and Greens in foreign policy are not very far apart. And uh, so I do not expect much more than continuity in foreign policy. Not in interior questions, but in foreign policy. The uh, coalition, German governments normally are coalitions, is now beginning their serious negotiations. They had a meeting today, but serious negotiations next Monday. 
it will take four to five weeks, so it is quite serious. And uh, then we will see the manifesto of the government. So I have to wait for that, that certainly. But uh, it's, I think it's a good guess to say there will be mainly continuity. Uh, what you said about the question uh, in 30 years, and certainly I must say not 30 years ambassador, because you begin in a quite a junior position, but uh, 35 years from junior positions up to that place. If there was any place where I could say, no, my conscience says, tells me I have to leave. Here I say, in a democracy, you have to accept that the legitimate government has a broad possibility to go this or that way. And uh, for example, it would not be a problem for me to serve a government who is a little more conservative on international finance and the one which is more progressive on that. But, and my wife is here, we talked about, for example, if the extreme right would participate in any German government, I would leave the service. So there's uh, are points of break I never had, and I hope I will never have. The uh, power of corporations, they are certainly there. The power of corporations is sometimes overestimated in the sense that they can do direct politics. I think even the time where the big oil companies did the great game in the Middle East, they are over. And some companies now, for example, when banks are nationalized, have to learn that in the end, the legitimate state can act, and they can act even on the biggest business. The question is, they have power by a different factor, and that is their effects. There is a power, and particularly in smaller countries, if a company tells you, you know, we leave the country if conditions aren't as we like them. And certainly every government is very, very sensible on workplaces. And there is certainly a possibility of pressure. But on the other side, I would put this not as a kind of a unique form of pressure, because you have pressures from all different sides. Trade unions can exert some pressure depending on solidarity of the workers. If they are not solidary, if they desolidarize, which is often the case in a service society, they have less. In classical working societies, they were much stronger, and sometimes they could prevail. They could also prevail not to the benefit of the country sometimes, as Britain has learned at some time. Anyway, uh, this is a power which has to be controlled in a way that the government has to be independent, but there are power structures which you cannot overcome just by snipping with your hands. Uh, the question about uh, the uh, relation between the practitioner and the academic. First of all, uh, if you want to go into the service, you are an academic. Your background is, as a diplomat, is academic. So you are on speaking terms. The second is you can get into the trouble of doing only practices and practicing and forgetting the theoretical part. I think this is not good work. If you do good work, you should couple back. And we have a lot of mechanisms in Germany to do it. The Ebert-Stiftung <coughs> is one of them. The so-called political foundations. The Ebert-Stiftung is more linked to the SPD, the Adenauer-Stiftung to the CDU, the Naumann-Stiftung to the FDP, the Luxembourg-Stiftung to the Linke, to the left. So we have these foundations who 
make research from a certain standpoint. We have institutions like the Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik, which is more neutral, or the German Society for Foreign Policy. I was myself on the board of that society, where we do academic research, but also debating. So what you need is a kind of more debating of uh, foreign policy. And what you said about that many people are interested, it is true. But if you make polls, it is not enough. It is still, if you have a, a real big issue, like the Ostpolitik, then we had thousands on the streets. Like Iraq, we had millions on the street. But then it's forgotten. And nobody's on the street for the forgotten wars in Congo. It's a very tragic, millions are dying, and nobody's on the street against the war in Congo. And uh, therefore I say this is very punctual, and there's not enough of that. Uh, what are we doing if we need technical expertise? First of all, uh, we try, and we are in the German Foreign Service, open to all academic backgrounds, whatever you study. I studied science, geophysics, <coughs> others did law, others did history, so you have a broad uh, group of people who have quite a lot of experience. And then, if this is not enough, you ask somebody. You go to the other institutions, you ask experts, you make symposia, and you have some regional institutes in Germany which are very, very valuable, regional institutes dealing with Asia, with Africa, and so on, and with the universities. So there are structures in place which you can use. I assume your answer to the question, do we need diplomats, is yes. That was a, a, a specific question, Paul, which, which you answer by implication. I just want to be clear, you're in favour of diplomats. You think we need diplomats. Uh, yes. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> I tell you something for that, because I think this is an anecdote, but I think it is it's a nice anecdote. When I was, uh, it was in 99, I came, I had a new chef in Berlin, and he was asking me if the uh, organization of our third world department for Africa, Asia, Latin America was correct or if, if we should have some changes in the, in the structure. And he went away for a, a trip and uh, when he came back uh, after a week I gave him a paper and uh, in that paper I proposed uh, that we change the structure and we cut his post. <laughs> so I have nothing against if I see there is nothing to do in a certain thing and I think this is also what, what uh, you said you have to be flexible you need the institutional setting but you have to be flexible if there is no need for work I go Good. Yeah. final contribution from Mary um, two points really I wanted to make um, one was the question on corporate actors um, I think you sort of, the tone of your question suggested that you see them as, as malign influences perhaps and spoilers um, and certainly there is you, there are plenty of examples one could point to where they're perhaps what one would call regressive globalizers using global flows to um, advance their own ends and not necessarily interests of, of peace and security certainly. But I think there's certainly another dimension that corporates can also be a very positive influence and somehow they're not in the conversation a lot of the time. I and mean, we talk a lot about comprehensive approaches, but uh, we tend to mean military and civilian, we tend to mean NGOs, we tend to mean security and development and we ignore a kind of corporate sector. 
And I think perhaps what we need is, is structures and ways of bringing them into that conversation and also regulating them. Um, the EU is one that doesn't use its power in that regard. I mean, it has, if you like, two completely different silos. It's an enormous economic power. It regulates uh, companies in terms of competition domestically. On the other hand, it, uh, it's very active in, in global politics and, and peace and security, but it doesn't seem to tie these two things together, and that's, that's a gap. Um, the other thing I just wanted to pick out of the conversation generally was this point about our worries on liberal interventionism. I suppose at one extreme of the picture, but perhaps at the other end, there's also just interference, sort of below the radar type um, activities that maybe diplomats do or don't get involved in. Um, it comes back to this, uh, this grappling at the moment with um, what sovereignty means and kind of loss of a clear idea of sovereignty. Um, we had in 1999 Tony Blair's famous Chicago speech on his doctrine of, um, uh, of liberal intervention, um, which sort of has come apart at the seams very radically um, through Iraq, through Afghanistan and so on. We now have ideas about contingent sovereignty and qualified sovereignty, and if you look at Kosovo, you have supervised independence. So there are all kinds of shades of grey now in this argument. Um, and certainly we need not only new forms of international law to codify um, a new idea about sovereignty and what individual, uh, not individuals, but governments and international organisations' rights and duties are, but perhaps more um, topically, we need new sets of practices, new sets of practices by military, civilian actors, um, as NATO is discovering in Afghanistan, um, you know, the, the kind of old concepts just don't fit anymore. Where does diplomacy come into all that? I think that's part of the pattern and the picture about how we view uh, sovereignty and how we want it to um, develop and what kind of rights or, or obligations it gives us to intervene in, in future. So part of a bigger picture, um, but I think it definitely is part of that and it needs to be considered along with uh, as part of the piece. Good. Thank you very much indeed. I, I think it's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, in, in some ways, because of the European uh, aspect to it, uh, it's impinged upon uh, another topic, which is... Uh, how far should the European Union uh, be like traditional states? Um, now, to some extent, um, in non-external relations, the European Union is clearly creating a different template for states to, to exist among themselves. Neither a super state nor anything traditional. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that it, it doesn't threaten, in a very radical way, the traditional notions of national sovereignty. It can do that without being an, a super state. And that's the part of the interesting debate, it, it seems to me. Um, that it is something very different from the traditional uh, concept of a nation state. Um, and it's a threat to the traditional concept of a nation state. Good, I say. Good. But that doesn't mean it's a super state. And perhaps this question of diplomacy and foreign policy puts this question in a very, very, uh, very dramatic way. Um, do we want to be a, a superpower along American lines? And my answer to that is certainly no. Um, so to that extent, I'm as it were on your side of the argument, no, not that I, I'm in a position to judge. But on the other hand, it is true that um, at the moment in external events, 
uh, external policies, we haven't yet achieved the, the hollowing out of the nation-state system that we have domestically. So that's a, a dilemma that we're going to have to wrestle with. And uh, that's what being a, an expert is about. It, it makes you confused, but you know more about it. And I think all of our speakers this evening have certainly confused me, um, but I'm very grateful to them because they've given me a lot to think about. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs>